Hello and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast that deals with the intricacies of planning worship each week. I'm Derek Weber, the Director of Preaching Ministries, and I'm here without my usual colleagues, Cynthia Wilson and Diana Sanchez-Bouchon. As the rest of the worship team, I've been assigned to talk a little bit about preaching and preaching for Lent. But our podcast is discussing how to plan worship using the Common Lectionary while creating worship series that are engaging, relevant, and adaptable for your church setting. This is Episode 5 from the Worship Area Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church, located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm excited to be here to share planning health for you in the area of preaching during Lent. That was the assignment that was given to me, um, so that Cynthia and Diana could take the week off. I think that was the plan, but, but I decided not to do it by myself, but I brought in a special guest. And my guest here is Melanie Bachman. Melanie, I heard uh, give a paper at the Academy of Homiletics last December, and her paper is titled Preaching Doubt Toward a Metamodern Homiletic in the Aftermath of Deconstruction. Melanie is a Ph.D. student at uh, Vanderbilt Divinity School and was happy to walk across the street and come over and to talk to us a little bit today. So welcome, Melanie. Glad that you're here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with... How did you come up with the idea of preaching doubt? Is that something that brought you to study, or did that arise as you began your Ph.D. work? It is a little bit of an odd idea, isn't it? Mm. Who would actually want to bring doubt into the pulpit? But uh, actually, this is, this is a question that I've had on my mind for the past few years, as I've been looking at generational research and church research and uh, the kinds of, of things people are saying in their exit interviews as they're leaving church. And um, I realized that a lot of what people were saying were they were expressing doubts in certain things, doubts in, in uh, the church as an institution, doubts in, in conceptions of God, all these sorts of, of uh, conversations that they wanted to have, but there was no place to have those conversations in church. So they had to leave and go somewhere else to have these conversations, and that's where the idea started. So it, it was a, a personal experience on your own part. Were these doubts in your own mind as well, or in friends of yours or family members? A little bit of, of everything. I think when I, when I went through seminary, you know, you, you always know so much more before you go to seminary. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and while I was in seminary, I had a little bit of an unsettling experience of realizing that some of the things that I thought were carved in stone really weren't. And um, I felt a little bit like the rug was being pulled out from, from under me, and I had to reevaluate a lot of different things um, that I thought I knew. Uh, secondly, um, our family experienced a tragedy um, that forced us to rethink God and rethink what goodness was and deal with some issues of theodicy. Uh, thirdly, I had um, very close young family members who decided that, that um church no longer had a place for them and they were leaving but what I noticed was they weren't leaving the conversation of God mm. they were still having those conversations and still wanting to explore spiritually but they didn't want to do it in in I guess a, a, a claustrophobic ecclesial context that's the impression that I was getting interesting yeah well people of my generation the question is how do we keep our children you know as they grow up and begin to ask questions too and many of them are leaving uh, churches because of 
the things that you describe, they don't get their questions answered or they don't see the relevance, the connection between their faith and their life in, in a way that's dynamic enough for them to hold on to. Now, your paper begins with, with a conversation about some high-profile defections from the church. I think you used yes. that word. Uh, talk to me a little bit so we can move it away from the personal a little sure. bit. But talk to me a little bit about your, your interpretation of what was going on with those two. And if you want to name them, that's, I think that's okay in this spot, too. So. Sure. Well, last summer, as I was doing some of this generational research and reading some of the data that was coming out of the research centers, um, there were two, as you said, high-profile evangelical leaders who basically broke up with Christianity in a very public way. One of those people was Josh Harris, the author of I Kissed Dating Goodbye, um, and also former sexual purity advocate. He posted on Instagram that he just, by all of the standards that, that he measured Christianity by, he did not feel like he fit those any longer, and he was leaving. The other person was uh, Marty Sampson, who was a Hillsong musician, worship musician and, and worship music writer, who um, said that he was leaving as well. And what I thought was really fascinating was in, in this Instagram post, he listed off several reasons why he was leaving. One thing that he named was the hypocrisy and the moral failure of leaders. Uh, another was the fact that he was seeing science come along and poke holes in, in, um, in some of the premises that, that a lot of Christian churches held. Mm -hmm. He was saying, look, there are a lot of contradictions in the Bible, and there are, there's a scarcity of miracles, and how can we worship a loving God that sends people to, he calls it a place, in quotes, for not believing? And the refrain that he used over and over again was, no one talks about it, no one talks about it, no one talks about it. And um, I thought that was really powerful for him to say, especially repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And it just fit into some of these other conversations that I've had with other younger people. I talked with, with um, a college student a couple of months ago, and we spent the entire afternoon talking about some of these questions and exploring this, and she said, I could have never had this conversation in church. I can have this conversation with my friends, but there's no place for me to have this conversation in church. Well, and you describe the reaction from the evangelical community and maybe some others as well yes. as they respond. And you, the quote that you put in the paper, I also found fascinating. You said, there was some signs of grace, but overall it was condemnation. Condemnation, I think some bewilderment. I think people didn't know how to take it, but there was a sort of a sense of, that stinging rejection that a lot of people in the in the evangelical community felt. Um, I, I heard people you know, trying to proselytize them back mm -hmm. or even condemn them saying, you know better than this. And there were some you know snide comments of be careful young worship leaders, this is what happens when, when the fame goes to your head. And uh, even Franklin Graham referenced them in, in, in an interview that he did, saying that he didn't consider them to be real leaders and they should be ashamed of themselves and uh, that they were going to have to answer to God. And he really didn't feel like they had a very strong faith to begin with. Which, which only reinforces the idea we can't talk about. We cannot talk about Rather doubt. than dealing with the questions or the mm -hmm. things that they were saying, the, the, the things that, that he mentions in that list that you gave. He, he just dismisses the whole event. Right. Well, I think it, it falls into an interesting binary that, that we tend to love, you know, as Christians, you know, saved, lost, heaven, hell, you know, God, the devil, and faith and doubt. 
Mm-hmm. And those two things, a lot, I think a lot of people feel are, are um, mutually um, irreconcilable, mutually exclusive and irreconcilable. Right. And when, uh, when you discuss later in the paper about uh, preachers being aware that there are those in the congregation who may be on their way out mm-hmm. or at least may be entertaining some of these questions. And so the challenge is how do we, how do we allow them to raise those questions uh, without providing easy answers. Uh, another thing that you mention frequently in your writing is that, is that too often we try to do a shallow surface covering up kind of thing. So when you talk about going deep to deal with someone's doubt, what, what do you envision in that process? Well, let me, let me just mention this. Um, there are a lot of people who are, quotes, nuns, N-O-N-E-S, that if you ask them what religion they they are a part of, they would check the nun box. There is a growing demographic of what um, the Barna Group is calling the de-churched, and those are the duns, Mm D-O-N-E-S. Those are the ones that would say, been there, done that. Um, And it occurred to me that if there are nuns and there are duns, there must also be almost duns people who are still in the church, but they might have one foot out the door. And so I, I did some checking, and sure enough, some research out of the University of Northern Colorado uh, that had been adapted by, I think, Josh ha- Packard and Ashley Hewitt, um, estimated that on any given Sunday, there are seven million almost duns in the pews who are on their way out, and they're not coming back. And... Um, you know, as a, as a student of homiletics, I spend a lot of time listening to sermons because that's the kind of nerd I am. Um, but I noticed again and again that preachers are still preaching as though they have the acquiescence of everyone in the congregation, mm-hmm. that, that everyone is operating from the same premises and that um, there are all of these givens, you know, which, which I think makes preachers feel secure sometimes in, in making those sort of exegetical leaps over chasms right. of doubt and, and setting up, you know, atheistic straw men that are easy to tear down or, um, you know, bringing up the kinds of shallow doubts that can be easily destroyed in a, you know, a 15 to 30 minute, you know, triumphalistic right. sermon. <laughs> sure. sure, yeah, that would make it easier. But how, how is what you're advocating or, or working toward different from what used to be called the seeker-sensitive message, mm. the ones who are trying to deal with those who are just on their way in, uh, as opposed to those who are on their way out? That's a very good question. I think I, I'm wondering if the questions are different on the way in than they are on the way out. Maybe not. I haven't considered that, that mm-hmm. in depth. But... Um, Actually, there was one blogger who who mentioned, you know, maybe we should stop focusing on those extremely elusive and sensitive seekers because now the believers are right. are leaving. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I think what I am advocating is um, bringing those some of those questions into the pulpit rather than hopping over them or working around them, but actually walking through them with the congregation. There are you know, plenty of people in the congregation who, um, like I said, feel there's no place where they can actually talk about this. I think hearing something from the pulpit that validates their doubt um, gives some substance to the depth of the struggle that they're having as they face some of life's complexities and some of these, these difficult realities and are having to work through them. 
How do you think that the current political divides feed into this unsettled nature of people who are still in the church, who are still hanging on, but maybe having some of the questions, and then they see what's presented to them as the Christian view uh, from a certain segment that may not represent them. You know, how does that impact all this conversation in your mind? Yes, there are some really interesting things happening in the news, aren't there? Um, <laughs> That's a subtle way to say that, Melanie, thank you. <laughs> I, I think that there are some things that we have elevated to divine status or sacralized that are at least in part um, projections or constructions of ourselves that we've created. Um, in fact, that's one of the questions that I have with young people who are saying, you know, I'm not sure that I believe in God anymore. What I'm, what I'm wondering is, are you really not sure if you believe in God or are you not sure you believe in your church's conception hmm. of God? Mm -hmm. Because um, I think a lot of times what we end up worshiping is a projection of ourselves that we then sacralize and then hold ourselves accountable to. Um, we don't like to think of it in that way because we like to think of, you know, this divine picture that we have as, as um, un unquestionable, you know, unassailable. But um, I think if we, if we recognize some of the ways that we project our own fears and our own um, desires, Mm -hmm. onto our religion um, and begin to interrogate those things, that we can start to pick those things apart. But, but I think you're right. If people see ideals being attached to Christianity and then spread in the media things that, that they don't agree with, I think that does create a divide. And you're talking about more than just language. Language is a part of it, how we describe God, how we talk about God. Mm -hmm. you, you have a great section in your paper about, about how we conceive of God and the God we project. Mm -hmm. That's what you are just mentioning there. But you're talking about more than just the word. You're also talking about the, the models that we have, the images that we have, that we hold in our own heads, mm -hmm. in, in our own hearts. Some, I know, uh, preachers today just try to avoid it by not saying he, but just saying God all the time, God. You know, try to say, I'm not putting an image at all mm -hmm. in it. But just by being who they are, they're putting an image in mm -hmm. it, wouldn't you say? So, so it's almost we have to present a counter image or, or also, and, 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 and also kind of image, you know, more uh, than just what we've been limited to. Mm -hmm. it, does that make some sense, that modeling of God in different ways? It does, absolutely. And actually, while you were talking, I was thinking of, of Elaine Ramshaw, um, who uses the word catechesis, which I think is a great word, catechesis. <laughs> catechesis. Okay. Um, it's a rhetorical term that actually denotes um, words that we know aren't doing the job that we need them to do, mm -hmm. but we use them anyway for lack of better terms. And I think when it comes to our liturgy and our preaching and even just our, our talking about the things of the divine, we are limited by human language. Mm -hmm. there, there's no way that we can really express right. in human language the vastness of the divine. And so we intentionally engage in, in this sort of baptized catechesis where we use words that we know aren't quite right, but they're the best thing that we have. And some of those, some of those words we use are metaphors. Mm -hmm. um, there are me some metaphors that um, 
have what Sally McFig calls staying power. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're metaphors that, that have sort of clicked, and so we've used them ever since. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, the metaphor of God as Father. Mm-hmm. I was taught as I was growing up to pray to our Father in heaven. Sure. And um, thinking, thinking now, um, it, it becomes very habitual. When I close my eyes to pray, even now as an adult, I still see an older white male, you know, with long flowing white hair and a beard looking sure. remarkably like Zeus, you know. <laughs> um, but I think those things factor into then how we, how we conceive of God, particularly if we, we use a limited number of metaphors. Then instead of those metaphors being mere glimpses or hints mm-hmm. of God, they become parameters of God. Another thing that Elaine Ramshaw says is that we have to remember the no in every metaphor there, are, there are may be a list of yeses. God is like this. God is like that. But we have to remember that that those are are pieces and not parameters. Um. <clears throat> That's the same trouble that preachers and liturgists have on Mother's Day and Father's Day, you know, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of yes, and we want to emphasize the the greatness of motherhood and fatherhood and all of that. But there are also limitations. There are mm-hmm. people whose experience of those categories is painful you know and so we want to include that no in that so is is part of the recommendation that you're suggesting is that we increase our metaphors we have more metaphors rather than dismissing them all just add in new ones perhaps yes yes absolutely um i there is a book that i'm actually in the process of reading right now i think that the author's name is lauren winner um, and she, she wrote a book called Wearing God, and she talks about all of these metaphors in the Bible that we never use for God because we, we rely on the models of, you know, of king as conqueror, as, you know, God, or, I mean, father, and all these sorts of things. But there are actually some other really interesting metaphors that she points out. God is laughter. Mm-hmm. God is clothing, even. You know, some of these things that, that have the power or at least the possibility of disrupting the divine normative that we've created in our head and allow that to expand then into something that we maybe hadn't thought of before. So it's not necessarily creating new ones, it's finding, you know, discovering them. Lauren Winner is a great writer. I love, I love a lot of her work, but, but she was pointing to the fact that we've just neglected some that are already there. It's not ones we have to create because they don't always fit the main models that we have, so we ignore right. them. Right. Well, when you put some of those some of those metaphors in, you know, in in the same room together, if we're taking them too literally, they can get a little strange. <laughs> right. Like yeah, right. if we're thinking of God as, that. you know, as father, as husband, and as brother, and as you know, those sorts of things. Those those are hints. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. those those yeah. cannot all coexist necessarily. Which is why there's always the no in the metaphor. Right. That makes sense. Now I have to. I don't want to get too, I'm stumbling over my words here because it, it troubles me a little bit, but I don't want to get too deep into this, but metamodernism is, mm-hmm. is a part of all that you're doing. Mm-hmm. In my research and my studies years ago when I did my doctoral work, it was postmodernism was mm-hmm. the word yes. and, and the theories of, of how we have to do church in the world today. So you're asking us to take another step. Can you briefly and as simply as possible, and I know philosophical terms go way beyond the ability to capture in a few words, but, mm-hmm. but how do you understand this new thing, this thing that's being discovered or revealed called metamodernism? 
Well, so far that is a working term that seems to be gaining some traction. So I don't know if that's the word that will stick okay. for the long term or not, but I'm seeing it more and more. So that's why I'm thinking that that may, you know, that may be the term. Okay. But um, what some cultural theorists are seeing is that postmodernism is outgrowing itself. And there are some changes that are happening that can no longer necessarily be called postmodern. And so they've been calling them metamodern. Um, the idea of metamodernism comes from a term that, that Plato used a long time ago. And what it ultimately or basically means is an oscillation between two opposing poles. Mm -hmm. So um, rather than being at one pole or the other, sort of moving back and forth in the middle. And I found that to be really interesting because it allows for, um, for opposing ideas to coexist. And when I read that and started looking into that, um, I, I mean, it's, it's evident in culture when we see things like these hybridized spatial realities, these architects who are, who are putting together uh, elements of architecture that we wouldn't normally mm -hmm. see together. Um, also, these um, people are bending music, musical genres right. yeah. and intentionally uh, marrying, you know, hip-hop and opera or those sorts of things. <laughs> or hip-hop and country. Ex we exactly. Are <laughs> like Lil Nas, Lil Nas X. And, sure. and Philly Ray Cyrus. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, so we see this sort of push away from the binaries and, and see this transgressing of categories that's happening in, in this metamodern aesthetic. Uh, we see um, things like gender fluidity um, and sexual fluidity and these sorts of things beginning to, um, to emerge, like Loki in the new Marvel mm -hmm. young adult novels. Um, so, so basically, metamodernism is creating a backdrop wherein we are not, um, we're not stuck in particular categories, but we can break out of those categories and look at what interesting things happen when we start merging categories. Mm -hmm. um, I found that to be particularly interesting with the emerging generations, the ones who are finding church to be um, uh, irrelevant or troubling, um, especially Generation Z, this, this newest generation that is emerging. Um, one of the things that, that uh, researcher, research, researchers have noticed, talk about you stumbling over Just your right. words. <laughs> it happened. <laughs> and that researchers have noticed is that Generation Z is the most culturally and ethnically fluid. Many of them are products of, of uh, mixed cultures, mixed ethnicities. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so even cultures, I guess, are, are enmeshed and... Um, just within Generation Z people. Mm -hmm. um, we're also seeing some other things that, in, in Generation Z, that reflect some things about the metamodern culture. They're also much more likely to be gender or sexual fluid. Um, and they're also more less likely to be interested in uh, traditional categories such as, you know, traditional roles for men and traditional roles right. for women and those sorts of things, which I thought was really fascinating put in conversation with metamodernism and also these, these binaries like faith and doubt right. that the church has. And so this looking at the way that the younger generation is able to sort of create hybridized religion, 
They may pull something from Protestant Christianity that, that appeals to them. They might um, pull something from iconography, from Catholicism, and they may pull in some elements of, of Buddhist meditation or something mm -hmm. and create this, this um, um, I guess, hybridized spirituality. And it doesn't even necessarily matter if some of those things are in conflict, which is another thing I thought was really fascinating. They allow for those contradictions to coexist, and that is another um, characteristic of metamodernism, is to walk amid, among, and between, and transcend these sorts of incongruities. We, we probably always lived with contradictions in our minds and in our hearts. We just tried to pretend like we haven't, that it all makes sense <laughs> together. I guess part of, uh, part of my question then, Melanie, is, is what happens to thus saith the Lord? Mm -hmm. You know, what happens to the, the here I stand of Martin Luther and, you know, that I'm certain about this. Mm -hmm. I may have questions about all kinds of things, but, but I'm is certainty a bad thing? Is certainty gone? Or, or what happens to that concept in, in the, either a modern, modern kind of world or in the preaching doubt if I'm allowing for those questions? Am I not allowed to say, this I know? <laughs> I think that all of us gravitate towards stasis. I think all of us like to have things that we can be certain of and sure of, um, and, and a solid foundation. Um, and I don't think that certainty is a bad thing, um, except that, you know, Peter Rollins talks about this, talks mm. about making an idol out of certainty and needing to be so certain of something that we don't allow um, that certainty to be questioned or interrogated, hmm. if that makes any sense. So we're, we're open to conversation. Way back when I was in seminary uh, a long time ago, I remember uh, an evangelism professor, David Lowe's Watson, who's now here in town, he said that it's not really an evangelistic conversation if there isn't the possibility that you might change your mind. Mm -hmm. you know, you're not really open. To it. It, it's, it's proselytizing if all I want to do is convince you I'm right. Mm -hmm. you know? But this, this preaching doubt idea seems to say to me that that means I need to put my certainties on the table as well too and, and, and not necessarily surrender them, but just say, let's talk about this too. Let's talk about how I understand God works in my life and what I have seen over the years that I have identified throughout the years as, as God's Holy Spirit working in me and through me and other people around me say, what a lucky thing that that happened or, or you know, <laughs> what a blessed moment that was, you know, uh, an accident. Um, and so I'm not necessarily surrendering that, but I'm raising the question. I, I understand how, how, you know, that it does seem accidental or mm -hmm. how God works in that. So it, we're back to, I think we started there, open to questions mm -hmm. and allowing people to have conversations in, in, in the midst, even in the context of worship, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Well, for me personally, I, I do love truth and I do love certainty, but I have come to understand that I always need to be open to a more truer truth. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that means, that doesn't mean that I don't believe anything. It means I, hold, I do hold certain beliefs that I have chosen to believe with the idea that if something else is revealed to me, I need to be malleable enough to, to receive that, mm -hmm. that truth. Barbara Brown Taylor's book, Holy Envy, talks about listening to others and learning from others. And, and it seems to me that her witness throughout that whole book is, while I 
when I'm teaching about Buddhism, I, I feel, you know, and feel the truth that's in that. Mm -hmm. But in the end, I don't surrender my faith, but it has been enhanced by mm -hmm. the truths that I hear from other, mm -hmm. from other perspectives. So that's part of the, the dialogue you're just discussing there. Yes, I think so. It's, we can come up with a really rich mosaic in, if we are having these conversations together and we are bringing our ideas together and even our conceptions of God mm -hmm. together into the same room and being able to, to look around and see this, this vast display. So let's, before we finish, let's talk practical for a moment. Mm -hmm. You know, what would a sermon look like that embraced doubt or what would a worship experience uh, look like that would say to those who are struggling, I hear you, I understand you, I know you. Where do you see those points of contact being made? Well, part of, of something that you and I have talked about um, outside of this conversation is that when preachers stand up to preach, they're not just preaching to the faithful, but they're not also just preaching to the almost duns. So there is, there is a, a tension there that, that we need to navigate. Um, Emily Dickinson wrote a poem, and it starts something to the effect of tell all the truth but tell it slant. Mm -hmm. And then it ends with um, the truth must dazzle gradually or all men will be blind, something to that, that right. effect. Okay. Um, I think when it comes to talking about some of these questions and some of these doubts, um, knowing your ministry context becomes really important. This idea of compassion and discernment and wisdom in what can, what can your faithful believers handle in terms of stretching their conceptions of God um, and introducing some, some, some tensions into what might be a very comfortable, secure place, mm -hmm. while also addressing some of the questions that, that the almost duns have. And, um, I think this idea of telling it slant mm -hmm. uh, is important. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote a book, I think, of that title, Tell It Slant, mm -hmm. and he talks about the stories of, of Jesus and how as Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross, you would assume that he would become more and more direct and just yeah. you know, have his punching gloves on and do the one-two, and he doesn't. He actually tells more stories. Right. You know, he, he makes some suggestions. He, he creates some incongruities and some tensions that people are then um, left to wrestle with in, in their own minds and come up with their own applications. And I think that is one way that, um, that we can introduce some of, those, some of those tensions and not resolve them. Mm -hmm. It's okay to let some tensions hang out there, to not tie everything up in a tiny little bow at the end and call it good. Um, but also reassure, while reassuring the congregation that, hey, we're in this tension, we're in this contradiction, this is interesting, but we're okay. Right. We might be in this t place of tension, but we're still in God's hands, you know. And if we take anything from the psalmist, <laughs> right. we can understand that God can handle whatever questions or, or anxieties or even angers that we, that we bring. Certainly, yeah, and the psalms bear witness to that, mm -hmm. as you say. Um, one of the things that, that has brought me comfort in an unsettling time is how Wesley his supposed last words were, best of all, God is with us. Hmm. In other words, the emphasis was about presence, not about power, not about how to fix things or change things, but, yes. but how to be together. And that somehow 
I think going forward, what the church needs to do is to communicate presence. We are with you. We are where you are. Mm -hmm. Tell me, uh, Melanie, as we finish up, um, what's your road like? Uh, how much longer are you going to be working on it? When can we read the book? I'm ready to <laughs> read the book. Um, and, and then what would be next for you? Are you looking at uh, ministry uh, uh, in the church or ministry in the seminary setting or what, what on your mind? Well, I am hoping that my dissertation will be done next year. And then um, if all goes as planned, a book will follow that. Okay. And um, so, so yes, that is, that's what's immediately in front of me. Beyond that, I, I feel called to academia. I would okay. love to teach. I would love to work with, with pastors who are going into the field, preachers who are, who are going to be able to, to take some of these layers of, of richness and complexity with them into their congregational settings. Good. I, I hope you can do that. And I hope also that you'll make yourself available to do continuing it too, for those who have been out there for a while, not just the oh, new sure. ones starting oh, out, yes. but those who've been there and are now saying, what I was taught in seminary years ago ain't working anymore. So <laughs> right. what can I do instead? How can I rethink my own homiletic and, and where I'm going and what I'm trying to do? I, Absolutely. I think you have a lot to, to offer us for that. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you very much, Melanie Bachman, for coming in today and sharing with us. Again, I do look forward to uh, whatever results or the fruits of all of your labors and and hope we keep asking these questions and, and raising them in the life of the church. I want to thank those who are listening today. We appreciate your, your faithfulness to us. And remember that you can always find more information about the work of the worship team at Discipleship Ministries at our website, which is umcdiscipleship.org. Until next time, may God bless you in your worship ministry as you make disciples for the transformation of the world. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.